morning. You all okay? Good. You think so? Okay. Well, hopefully that will improve as the morning goes on. Um, So for those of you that haven't met me, my name's Nick and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, And it is my joy to speak to you this morning. I have to give you a little disclaimer. Got a little bit of fire in my belly this morning over this one. Um, Normally, that's represented by me wearing my red boots, but I thought it's summer, kind of spring, summer, so I've just got my trainers on today. But I am feeling um, really compelled by what it is I feel like God has asked me to bring to you this morning. And I hope that uh, you are as challenged by it as I have been this week as I'm spending time on it. So um, we are in the middle of a series at the moment uh, about gifts that bring life. We're talking about spiritual gifts. um, And there is a whole stack of gifts. So, um, Kathy, if I could have my first... Here we go, Brill. I think I'm on and working... Do you know what, Kathy? I might let you do these because this is like my nemesis every single time. If someone would like to come outside of a Sunday morning and train me on how to use the clicker, I would love that. But for now, Kathy, I'm going to hand over to you to go onto the big list, please, of all of the gifts. Brilliant. So these are. Press that one, just press that. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's my nemesis. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, my trainer. Do I get a certificate to say I've finished my training? So, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm going to pass. So, here are a list of all the spiritual gifts that we see in the Bible. Now, to give you a heads up, we're not going to talk about all of these. You're not going to be here for the next year going through these. We're just picking and choosing a few to focus on. Chris has spoken about prophecy and encouragement. And today, I am going to be talking about showing mercy. And uh, as I've said, this is something I feel very passionately about. Um, And actually, I have to say, whenever I prepare a talk, um, I always go look for wisdom elsewhere. I'm like a lifelong learner. I don't for a minute think that I have the monopoly on the best things to say on a topic. So when I start to explore a topic, I will go online, I'll speak to people, and I'll try and look for what is out there already. Is there some wisdom out there? When I looked up the gift of mercy... I felt a bit gutted, if I'm honest, by what is out there. It was so beige. It was so, like, the gift of mercy somehow seems to have been diluted to people who are nice to people, to people who help people. It's like, that's the gift of mercy. If you've ever done one of those spiritual gift tests, and like it's the, oh, they're the people that are really nice. Like if someone needs help, the people with the gift of mercy are the people that go and help those people. Now, like the, the gift of mercy in the Bible comes from the word elio, which means being patient and compassionate towards others. But do you know what? If we actually want to see what mercy looks like, we have to look at what Jesus was like. And the way Jesus did mercy was outrageous. Like, it was radical. The way he looked at people was absolutely audacious when it came to mercy. And I feel a bit sad that somehow we seem to have diluted this concept down to being nice to people or helping people. Like some of our compassion projects, um, sometimes they're called kind of mercy ministries where we look after and we help people in need. Yes, that is mercy. And there's a whole other story. And that is where I feel that God has wanted me to highlight this morning as we talk about this. So this is where it... Oh, look at me go. Oh, 
<laughs> the clicker works. Um, so this is where it comes up in the Bible. It's first mentioned. Romans 12. It says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If you're... What? Oh, it's come up on my screen. Sorry. My bad. I got it right, can I just say. I clicked. Can I I take this moment? Thank you. Um, So we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Just hold on to that last little bit. We're going to come back to that later. Now, here at Numa Church, we are a family on a mission looking to live and act the way that Jesus did. We honestly believe that if we can do that, we will see transformation come to Ashford and beyond. It is that simple. We look at what Jesus did, and then we follow his model, and we do it as best we can. And when it comes to mercy, the bar is very, very high. If we're actually going to live like Jesus, the bar, when it comes to mercy, is super, super high. You only have to start by looking at Jesus' crucifixion. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details, but this man has been hung on a cross, beaten, humiliated, whipped. The injustice of the whole situation, he has been through the most horrendous physical, emotional, mental trauma And he hangs on the cross, and what do we hear him say? Forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. That is radical mercy. I don't know, I would say, I don't know if it's humanly possible, and yet Jesus was fully human, so it must be. If it's humanly possible to go through that level of trauma and abuse and then in front of the people that have done that to you, you don't shout abuse back at them. You don't tell them of the injustice, but your heart is positioned to say, they just don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. That is absolutely audacious. So let's not reduce mercy to being being nice to people, because it is so much more than that. This is what Jesus says in Luke 6. He doesn't pull his punches here when he's talking about what mercy looks like. He says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, it will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Now, I find it really interesting that in this passage, it says, do not judge, do not condemn, and yet it doesn't give any conditions or criteria. So it doesn't say, do not condemn, unless someone did something really bad, in which case, crack on. It doesn't say, do not judge, unless someone is a repeat offender, in which case, they deserve everything they get because they should know better. It doesn't say that. There are no conditions. It says, do not condemn, do not judge. And I find that if ever there were a group of people that should represent this, it's people following Jesus. 
And yet, sadly for me, one of the biggest criticisms about the reputation of the church and Christianity is that we are the most judgmental group of people out there. And that is not what we are called to do. And somehow we take self-righteousness and condemnation and judgment and we use it as an excuse to show people their sin. And it's not okay. And it's never okay. We believe that that self-righteousness in us, well, we have to tell them they're doing wrong. Surely I have to expose their sin. Surely if I want to point them towards Jesus, I need to hold a mirror up and say, actually, can you see how bad your life is? But it's about a heart condition. It's about a heart posture. And it's really important that as I speak this morning, I want you to know that there's a, there's a difference between judgment and justice and mercy and justice. If you are sitting here this morning, as many of you will be, and you have been wronged badly, and you have been hurt, or you have been abused, or you have had people strip you of your dignity, mercy is not the same as justice. Justice needs to still come for people. Justice, you still are accountable for your mistakes. You are still accountable for your decisions and your choices. But mercy is about a heart position towards people who make mistakes and mess up. Now, in its simplest form, mercy is not giving people what they deserve, not treating people in the way that they deserve. And I think it all starts with a change in our thinking where we start to see people as sons and daughters. As Herb said during the worship this morning, we have to start knowing who we are, and it goes beyond that. Mercy goes beyond that to actually when we look at someone and we start to judge their behavior, their decisions, their morals, the way they've treated people, it starts by us saying first, they are a son and they are a daughter. We have got to stop demonizing people and we've got to start humanizing people again. We have to humanize people. And you know what? It's so easy to do this to a degree. And then we get into the big hitters. We get into the people that really, really, we believe deserve judgment, condemnation. And I would love to say that when Jesus spoke, he gave us a threshold And he said, you can give mercy and show mercy up until this point. And then after that, I can't expect you to because it's too hard. But he didn't give us a get out. Putin is a son. He is a son. He was created. He was designed. He is a son of the Most High. Should justice come... Absolutely. And should we have a heart posture that wants to call out the goodness that is woven into his identity as a son of God? Yes. It doesn't stop with a threshold of who is acceptable in our eyes. It goes way beyond that. How do you feel about doing it cheerfully now? The issue I have is that in a society we live in, the victim is king. And I'm not saying we shouldn't love, restore, and bring victims to a place of wholeness. We absolutely should. 
but I totally believe that perpetrators deserve the same opportunity to be brought into a place of restoration, wholeness, value, and love as the victim. And somehow we've lost sight of that in society and as the church. Yes, victims are so valuable, important. It's so important that we take people in a place of grief and pain and suffering and we show mercy to them by loving them to a place of restoration. But please let's not forget the perpetrator too. They need Jesus just as much. And that's messy and it requires Jesus' people to be able to walk alongside them to see them to come into a place of wholeness and forgiveness and value as well. Now the story for me in the Bible that exhibits radical mercy perhaps more than any other, is found in the book of John. And I want you, as I read this story to you, I would really encourage you, if you feel able, to close your eyes and imagine yourself in this place as I read the story. Don't just listen to it as a story you've heard before. Actually picture yourself stood in the middle of this scene and watch it play out in front of you. So in John 8, it says this, Jesus walked up the Mount of Olives near the city where he spent the night. Then at dawn... Jesus appeared in the temple courts again, and soon all the people gathered around to listen to his words. So he sat down and taught them. Then, in the middle of his teaching, the religious scholars and the Pharisees broke through the crowd and brought a woman who had been caught in the act of committing adultery and made her stand in the middle of everyone. Then they said to Jesus, Teacher, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Doesn't Moses' law command us to stone stone to death a woman like this? Tell us, what do you say we should do with her? They were only testing Jesus because they hoped to trap him with his own words and accuse him of breaking the law of Moses. But Jesus didn't answer them. Instead, he simply bent down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Angry, they kept insisting that he answer their question. So Jesus stood up and looked at them and said, Let's have the man who has never had a sinful desire throw the first stone at her. And then he bent over again and wrote some more words in the dust. Upon hearing that, her accusers slowly left the crowd one at a time, beginning with the oldest to the youngest, with a convicted conscience. Until finally... Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there in front of him. So he stood back up and said to her, Dear woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? Looking around, she replied, I see no one, Lord. And Jesus said, Then I certainly don't condemn you either. Go from now and be free from a life of sin. Now we are going to unpack this a little bit, but it starts with an understanding of what this scene is actually depicting, which is this woman was caught in the act of adultery. We have to assume that she is partially clothed, unclothed, and that even if she has had a chance to put clothing on, she has been caught by a group of scholars, religious people, in the very moment of committing that act. I cannot begin to imagine the vulnerability of this woman at this moment. And she is dragged out and put where? Not somewhere she can hide in the corner in shame, in the middle of a crowd of people willing to unleash 
their judgment and condemnation on her. I want you to imagine just for a moment something you have done in your life that perhaps you are not proud of. A moment where you feel like you said something, you did something that you feel maybe you've been ashamed of. It's been something you wish you didn't do. And then in that moment, I want to imagine that you are pulled into this room and put in the middle of it for everyone to be told what that is. That is the ultimate in humiliation and shame and judgment. But the first thing Jesus does is hugely merciful. He doesn't get pulled in with the crowd. He diverts the attention away from this woman and he takes the eyes of the people somewhere else. That is mercy. There's all kinds of scholars that wonder what he was writing in the sand. I I don't really care what he was writing in the sand because I'm not sure it was relevant. If it were relevant, I think we would know. I actually think the biggest thing of relevance is you have a semi-clad lady in a place of humiliation stood and all eyes are on her and what he does in a moment is move all eyes off her and onto him. That is mercy. And then what he does is he places the humanity of the people in that group front and center and he says, do you know what? You would only be one decision away from being in this position too. You're only one breath away from this being you here. If you think you've got it all together, be my guest. You go first. And of course, it's fascinating that the oldest leave first. Because we all know that the more hours we breathe, the more likely we are to make bigger mistakes and worse mistakes and have a catalogue of things that we're not proud of. So the oldest get it first because it doesn't take them long to realise that they are not perfect either. And they start to walk away. That is mercy. What he does in that moment is he takes the perpetrator, this lady, from a place of isolation and he puts her in a place where she is on a level playing field with everybody else. That is powerful. We seem to have a habit with people that make mistakes or screw up of making them stand alone in the corner, isolating them, highlighting them, saying, well, we're not over there with you. That's you. Look at your choices over there. And what Jesus does is he suddenly creates this flat playing field where he says, do you know what? She's mine. She is a dear child of my father. And so are all of you. So start treating her like one. And I find it really interesting that he must have said it with such authority that nobody argued. That, for me, is one of the most fascinating things. In our household, if I try and highlight one of these situations with our children, they don't do this, you're right, mum, and then walk away. I don't think that's happened once. We then have an argue, yeah, but she may have done that, but that's much worse than what I did. And that's what happens in our home. But isn't it interesting here that when Jesus delivers this with such authority, there is no argument. People don't start leveling sins up. And let's be honest, it's not like we don't know if she's done it. She is guilty of that crime. She was caught in the act. But in that moment, Jesus looks at her and has mercy and they've all left And then he looks her in the eye, and this 
is what audacious, radical mercy looks like that we are invited into. He takes her greatest fear, being condemned, being bad, being wrong, being unlovable, and he looks her in the eye and he says, I don't condemn you. That is the identity we sang about this morning. He's basically talking on behalf of his father and he's saying, that's not who you are. You are not an adulteress. You're a daughter. That is what mercy looks like. Her deepest fear. And the problem with shame is what shame does is it takes the concept of what I did was wrong, and it sends a message of who I am is wrong. Shame says it's not that what I did was bad, I am bad. And what Jesus does in this moment is separate out her choices and her behavior from her identity, and he says, this, that is not who you are. So when we start putting behavior and identity in the same category, we are going to get it wrong every single time. When we start judging ourselves based on what we do and say, we're going to get it wrong every time. Jesus separates the two out and he says, it's not about what you did, it's about who you are. And I'm saying, I know who you are and I don't condemn you. And then the last thing he says is a parting gift to her is go and from now on be free from a life of sin. Now, I've been around churches a long time. I've heard this story spoken of lots of times. I've read it lots of times. And if I'm really honest, I've always read this as a little bit of a rap on the knuckles on the way out. Like, basically, I've let you off this time. But don't do it again. Like, and I wouldn't say I've believed it that strongly, but that's the heart with which I've believed it, which is basically, okay, I don't condemn you, but I don't want to be back here again next week having this conversation with you again. You know, it's that thing. You know, that that sound like that's what's in my house? That does happen. Um, So that's what we believe somehow that what he leaves her with is a warning. We leave her, it's like he leaves her with a, don't test me on this. But actually, I heard someone speaking about this recently, and it totally shifted my thinking on this. If you, like, repentance means changing your thinking. Man, this was a repentance moment for me. Do you know what he does in this final moment? He doesn't give her a warning. He prophesies a preferred future over her. He basically doesn't say, don't do it again. He says, do you know what's possible? What's possible, because I know who you are, is that you can go from here and live a life free from here on in. He prophesies what's possible. He doesn't condemn her. And that is what he does for us too. But the thing is, he's inviting us to do that for others. How much do we say, okay, I'm going to show mercy to you, but don't do it again. Or I'm going to show mercy to you, but I'm not very happy about it. Or I'm going to show mercy to you, but seriously, this is your last chance. But mercy is a heart condition that looks at people through the eyes of a father as sons and daughters. And it says, I know that's not who you are. And we have a young lady living in our house at the moment. um, And she is a 
beautiful young lady, and I feel like I spend most of my time saying to her, I know who you are. You're beautiful. You have the power to change the world. And when she makes choices that are not great choices, I say the words to her, you know that's not who you are. Because mercy looks like calling out identity from people, sons and daughters. It doesn't look like shame and condemnation and judgment, even if you cloak it as a prayer request. Even if you say, I'm going to pray you change your heart, that's not mercy. I'm going to pray that you change your ways, that's not mercy. I'm going to pray you stop hurting people. I mean, yes, pray that. But actually, more than that, pray that that person comes into a revelation that they are a son and they are a daughter. That is what mercy looks like. And I would say there are some keys to how we do this because it's not easy. And if you ever read the gifts of the spirit list, you know where it says, to some I'll give this and to some I'll give that. If you ever read it and think, yeah, I just haven't been given that one. Like, I just haven't been given mercy. Like, that person does mercy really well. Then I would suggest we all have an opportunity to show mercy. Some of us may be specially gifted in this area. But I would suggest it is available when we position ourselves that we all get to receive this gift. And some, some top things I would say to you as we have a look at how do you do this. I'm literally just going to flick to the last one. You can get the answers all in one go. The first one is this. Don't get caught up with the crowd. If you go on social media or if you are in a room and everyone is having a bit of a moment at slagging someone off or highlighting their sin or exposing their poor choices, don't get involved. Turn it the other way. Don't kneel on the floor and start writing. But, I mean, if that's what it takes, do something to deflect away from the shaming that is happening and instead speak life and bring life. Don't get pulled in. It's so easy to do where someone says, can you believe they did that? I can't believe it. And then suddenly you're all getting pulled in. Just stop. Don't get pulled in. Instead, stop for a minute before you throw your first stone. And look at your own life and your own heart and the mercy that you have received from God. And let that be the thing that drives you on in that next moment. Pursue a life of seeing people in their God-given identity and not based on their behavior. The way I do this is I would say, God, show me how you see them. What do you say over them? Next, seek to understand. We have a phrase in our house that our children parrot back at us, which is, there's always a why behind the what, which, because we say it all the time. They'll come home and they'll be like, well, this person did this, or this person, or can you believe this? And honestly, I would say multiple times a week, Chris and I will say the phrase, there is always a why behind the what. We have got to seek to understand why people make the choices they make. And when we understand it, it's so much easier to show mercy. So much easier. There's all kinds of statistics. 64% of people using sub misusing substances in the UK have had more than four what are called um, adverse childhood experiences. I haven't got time to go into it, but there is a list of things that when they happen to people and you have trauma in your life, that it actually creates a greenhouse almost, which cultivates more trauma and more pain and poor decision-making. 
And for 64% of people using substance misuse services in the UK, they've got four or more of the nine of those experiences that have happened in their life. Maybe if the victim is king, we need to start looking at perpetrators as victims too and realise that there is a why behind the what of what drives people's decision. And then lastly, and this one has a caveat, Walk with people to call them into a different story. Call out their identity. And I've said here, if appropriate. And the reason I've said this is it would be very rare that it would be appropriate for the victim to walk alongside a perpetrator and call out the, the good in them. So that it's so important that you hear this. That actually we need to protect ourselves and we need to love well And if you have been the the victim of someone that has made mistakes, hurt you, done you wrong, I am almost certain God is not inviting you to walk alongside that person into a place of restoration. But as the church and as people who follow Jesus, we are all invited into a place to walk alongside that person as family together. So we are going to finish with a little practical... Oh, and here's the kicker in all of it. Do it cheerfully. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> so we are going to finish, but we're going to finish with something really practical. You've all got a piece of paper on your chair. Now, the great news is this could, get, it could have got really awkward. No one's going to write the name of anyone on their piece of paper um, because we don't want to have to find like that person sat next to you that's like, it's me, I've wronged you. Um, so what I'm going to do is ask you to rip your paper in two so that you end up with two pieces of paper. Yeah. And then if you're at home, grab a piece of paper or you can have two pieces of paper. You don't have to rip yours up. And on the first one, if, you've, if you need a pen, there are pens hanging around at the back. Just wave and one of these lovely ladies will bring you a pen. Um, the first piece of paper, I want you to write on it the behavior or action of someone that has hurt, offended you. Now, it might be someone who you have day-to-day interactions with that you struggle so much with their morals and the way they speak and the language they use, the decisions they make. It may be a specific area, but I want you to write the behavior of that person on that piece of paper. What is it they've done? What offends you? What hurts you? What do you think is wrong, if you like? We want the behavior on the first piece of paper. And then, when you've written that, put it to one side. And then on the second piece of paper, I'm going to ask you to take 10 seconds and ask God, what do you say about them? And then write that down. What do you say about them? And then write that on your second piece of paper. So first piece of paper, the behavior of someone that has done you wrong, that you disagree with, that has offended you, that has hurt you. Put that to one side. Don't write their name. I don't want to be knowing all those things when I pick up the paper potentially later. And then the second piece of paper is take a moment, sit quietly and ask God, what do you say about them? And then write that down. When you've done that, I have a bin at the front here and I'm going to ask you to come and take the behaviour of that person and come and chuck it in the bin. Screw it up, chuck it in the bin. This bin bag will get closed and thrown away straight after the service. But I'm asking you to hold on to what it is that God says about them.
Let's stand and we're going to pray. Father, I ask that everything that we do with what we have heard this morning and how you have spoken to us starts from a place of being merciful to ourselves. That we would learn to show ourselves mercy in the way that you show us mercy. That we would know who we are. And that as we know who we are, that you would invite us into being able to hold up a mirror and show those around us who they are by offering and showing mercy in a radical, audacious, outrageous way. That our hearts would be softened towards people to see them first as sons and daughters. And just as we have thrown away behavior, that that might be a symbol today, that in every interaction we would, we would separate out people's behavior from their identity and we would look to pray for and bless people from a place of wanting them to know who they are as sons and daughters. That we as a church would be known and hallmarked as a family who are radically, radically merciful. Where transformation is possible because of who you are as our Father. Thank you, Father. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today, and we hope you enjoyed it. For more information, visit ashfordvineyard.org, or maybe drop into something if you're nearby. In the meantime, have a great week, and know just how loved you are.